you've got a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to that gospel passage at the very end of Matthew chapter 11, some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible uh, that come right after, if you were here last week, a passage that sounded very different, right? If you remember from last week, Jesus's tone in that passage was sharp, like all these woes denouncing uh, Jesus the judge is who he saw. This week, his tone could not be more different. Here, Jesus is inviting us to himself. Specifically, he is inviting us to experience in our lives deep soul rest. For some of you, even the mention of the word rest is like, ah, your ears perk up. It's summer, right? You're either straining towards a summer vacation or you just came off of one and you're either rested or you're not and kind of freaking out because that was it. But what Jesus seems to be talking about here, what we'll see today, is that he's not actually referring to a vacation. He's not actually referring to an occasional break from the daily grind. This is not something that happens, this deep soul rest, during me time. But something that happens in the traffic of daily life, in the traffic of the daily grind. This is rest as daily lived experience. And I believe that Psalm 23, which we just prayed together, can be seen as a commentary on this kind of rest that Jesus is inviting us into. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, literally there, waters of rest. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And on and on, cup overflowing, feasting in the presence of enemies, the felt sense that goodness and mercy are following me all the days of my life and will continue to do so into the age to come. Psalm 23, like only the best poetry can, is mapping for us the utterly unique terrain of Jesus's rest. But the problem is, if you're anything like me, the description of Psalm 23 doesn't really seem to characterize our lived experience, right? Some of us might be thinking, that sounds great, but not realistic. I've got too much going on right? Not with my job, not with my home life, not with the drama that I'm dealing with. No, Psalm 23 might be an occasional thing, I feel, but not something, not a rhythm that I'm living in, I'm abiding in. I believe the Lord is my shepherd, but I don't feel like my days are marked by green pastures where I can stop and lie down. I don't feel like I'm being led day by day besides still waters, waters of rest, accompanied, comforted even through the valleys of the deepest shadows. No, I feel like I've got anxiety at a simmer, mild depression, high levels of stress, emotional burnout, maybe even little to no sense of the presence of God, an inability to focus my mind on the things that really make for life. 
Maybe that's the way, if we're just real and honest, we feel day in and day out. And yet, it is deep soul rest that Jesus invites us into. Not as an occasional break, but as daily lived reality. And so as we go forward, I want us to keep this image of Psalm 23 in the back of our minds. Imagine that behind the external circumstances of your life, there is this deeper reality of being led through green pastures and beside still waters and comforted and protected through deep, dark valleys. I want you to keep that in your imagination. And we're going to see today that there are three rhythms that Jesus invites us into so that that is true. So that behind whatever is going on, we are walking through these valleys with Jesus in deep rest, okay? Three rhythms that Jesus invites us into that we see in this passage, okay? The first rhythm is to bring our burdens, bringing our burdens to Jesus. Verse 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest, okay? The invitation goes out to people who are, heavy, are, are labor and are heavy laden. And I think that Jesus has two kinds of people in mind, okay? First are the people that Jesus has been addressing all along through the Gospel of Matthew, okay? These are the crowds that flock to him, like a sheep without a shepherd, okay? These are the blessed people that he names in the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, the pure in heart, etc., etc. Okay? These are people who are serious but discouraged. They want to be good. They want to please God and to help people. But they feel quite selfish. They feel unup to the task. They feel inadequate. And finally, they, they feel like failures. Okay, these are the people who, if, if you were here last week, these are people who do not need the sharp words of Jesus chucked like a hardcover book at someone's head to startle them awake, okay? They need the comforting balm of invitation. This is the first kind of group that Jesus is talking to. And yet, if I had to guess, I would guess that for a lot of us, that's not really resonating. And like, maybe you feel terribly worn down and burdened, but not for those reasons. Like maybe you feel worried that this invitation to rest is not gonna apply to you because I don't know that I'm especially pure in heart. I don't know that I'm merciful or, or especially poor in spirit, right? You see, there's another reason that we see in this passage, there's another reason that we might be heavily burdened, and I think Jesus speaks to that as well. And it's kind of under the surface. You see, this passage is right on the heels of the one we just heard last week, right? Where Jesus is forcefully denouncing the cities who in their spiritual pride refused heart change in response to Jesus. And so in verse 25, right on the heels of that, Jesus casts a sidelong glance at the prideful, one more time, as he's praying. Look at this, verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, i.e., the prideful, and revealed them to little children. It's such a sly move that Jesus is making. And telling the prideful that there's a secret hidden from them 
He is inviting them in on the secret. It's like he's saying, there's something you're not getting. Would you like to know? And then he gives the invitation, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. You see, pride is an incredibly heavy burden. And so the prideful need this invitation to lay their burdens down. The tricky thing is, and this is why I'm talking about this again, the tricky thing is we may be totally unaware that so much of our exhausted laboring and burdened living could be because of pride. It's not actually our circumstances. If I can just change that, if I can just get to this place, then I'll finally be at peace. It's, it's not actually our circumstances. Jesus lived an incredibly difficult life, but he operated out of a wellspring of joy and peace and rest. He did not carry with him the intolerable burden of pride. You see, pride is sneaky. The proud person is probably not who we automatically think of first, that obnoxiously haughty person, the person who is constantly self-promoting, right? Probably not. Um, Bishop Robert Barron puts it perfectly. He says this, pride essentially is self-regard. And this means not so much thinking highly of oneself, and this is very C.S. Lewis, but simply looking at oneself. Not really thinking highly of yourself, but just looking at yourself. So I'm going to steal an illustration from him uh, because it's just perfect. It says this, let's contrast two experiences. Consider first, you are lost in a fascinating conversation. Following the central idea as it unfolds, compelled by the rhythm of question and answer, unaware of any agenda of your own or of your conversation partner. Okay? And second, you are watching yourself have a conversation, conscience, conscious of the effect you are producing and want to produce, exquisitely attentive to the reaction and attitudes of your conversation partner, hoping that she finds you interesting, suave, and intelligent. Man, isn't that good? <laughs> Either you're absorbed in preaching the sermon or you're watching yourself preach the sermon, right? Wondering what people are thinking. This is pride at work. Self-regard, that is actually a terrible burden. It prevents the joy and ecstasy that happens when you get outside of yourself. It's a curving inward on oneself. The need to constantly manage people's opinions of you. The need to put yourself on center stage. To constantly perform for the praise of other people. Which so quickly dissipates and calls for renewed effort, redoubled effort to receive that praise again, to receive that look again. And it all can be done very quietly by looking like a very humble person. But really, there's so much self-regard going on. And it's crazy tiring. For us, we need to hear Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, even if it's for bad reasons. It's no mistake that these words, this invitation, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, this is one of those things that's spoken um, very often right after our confession of sin. It's called the comfortable words, right? It's no mistake. It's a reminder every week that our sin is an awful burden that weighs us down 
drags us down and has us feeling absolutely exhausted. And every week, Jesus offers to take that burden again, to relieve us of that burden, right? Really, all of our sin can be boiled down to this pride, this self-regard, this working for the kingdom of self instead of for the kingdom of God. And so every week, we're invited to come lay it down at his feet and be relieved of that awful burden. So the first rhythm Jesus invites us into is bringing our burdens, whether good burdens or bad burdens, okay? Second, Jesus then invites us to take his yoke upon us. Okay, that's verse 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest, and take my yoke upon you. Okay, now this is odd. This is an odd rhythm for rest because yoke is a work thing, okay? Rest and yoke are opposites. Okay, you can look on the front of your worship guide if you're not sure what, uh, what a yoke is. There's a picture of it there, right? The farmers in the room know. Um, it's that bar coming up between the oxen that's attaching them together, and they drag that to, uh, the plow together using the yoke. They're yoked together. All right, one writer put this image brilliantly. He said, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. So good. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give to the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. The rest Jesus offers here is an unexpected thing. It's a rest along the way. See, we hear rest, and in our, in our exhaustion, we automatically think escape, I can just get out from under this thing that's making me so tired. And what Jesus offers is a different way to do the life you've been given, a different way to shoulder the load. Rabbis used this yoke imagery, so people would have understood it as soon as Jesus said it, right? A rabbi's yoke was his way of understanding the Torah, but also his way to do life, his way to be human, how to shoulder the crippling weight of life, marriage, divorce, Prayer, money, sex, conflict resolution, government, all that stuff was the yoke to learn to apprentice under a rabbi. It's how you shoulder a load. Jesus is a realist. What he's saying here is you have a yoke on your shoulders and the key is not to have no yoke. You have a yoke on your shoulders, every one of you. You're toiling away at something even if you're unemployed. But the odds are, if you're a human being, your yoke does not fit you. Odds are, at least to some degree, you are shouldering a burden that you were never meant to shoulder, and that thing is chafing. That yoke of workaholism, that thing doesn't fit you. You're a human made in the image of God. You're not a machine. That prideful yoke we were just talking about, of serving yourself and serving your own interests, that constant self-regard, that thing is not light. There is constant anxious toil required to keep that field plowed. You're in the wrong yoke, plowing the wrong field. Enter the yoke with Jesus. It's never a solitary burden. The image involves two oxen, always. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. All right, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this uh, passage is the best. 
It gets right at it. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. It always blows my mind reading the Gospels, okay, to get into the Gospel stories with my imagination and watch not just what Jesus is saying and doing, but watching how he says it and how he does things. He seems to live his entire life, which again was incredibly intense, out of a place of rest. He's falling asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm when everyone else is freaking out, okay? People never seem to be able to interrupt him, no matter how big and important the thing he's doing is. He doesn't have a swell of irritation bubble up when people interrupt his plans. Like just a couple of examples. On the way to Jerusalem, like the showdown of the cross, huge crowds following him, climax of his life and mystery, the most terrible thing is about to happen to him, and he stops the entire crowd to tend to two blind men who are calling out for him, who everyone else is telling to be quiet. We've got, like, stuff is going on. Big things are happening. Stops the whole crowd. This is one of my favorite ones. He's on the way to a well-deserved rest with these disciples. Tells his disciples, you need to get away for a while and rest. And they're headed that way, and then the crowds show up. The needy crowds. And all the disciples are annoyed. Send them home to go find some food. But Jesus has pity. He sees them like a sheep without a shepherd. If my car is packed and we are on the way to vacation and a bunch of needy people I don't even know show up, like, is my automatic reaction that just comes out of my heart naturally that? How does Jesus do this? How does he live his life like this? Well, it's because he is in a yoke too. He's yoked to his father. He says this again and again in the Gospels. And he says it in verse 27, actually. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus' lived experience, his way of seeing himself and seeing the world is that everything is from his Father. He's about his Father's business. His food is to do his Father's will. His life is not about him. It's about his Father. Everything that happens in the course of Jesus' day is charged with God's presence. And listen, it makes a difference. Jesus invites us into that way of living. Jesus invites us into his own life of seeing our whole lives charged with God's presence so that suddenly our question is not, is God speaking? How often have we asked that question? If God would just speak, if he would just show up, if he he would just make himself known to me. The question is not really that. The question becomes, what is God saying? It's a given that he's speaking in everything. Everything that happens to us in the day, this is what it's like to walk in the yoke of Jesus. Everything that happens to us in the day, from the people we meet, to the weather, to the appearance of a beautiful vista, to an insulting word, in everything God is speaking pursuing us or alluring us. Nothing is a meaningless grind. 
No. Life is charged with meaning and with the possibility of adventure. You see, Jesus is not offering to us today a change of circumstances, but a completely different way of navigating the traffic of life. We're aware that the shepherd is there. (laughs) He's trying to point out green pastures for us to lie in. He's trying to lead us beside still waters for us to take a drink. His rod and his staff are, are right next to us in the valley of the shadow of death. Our cup is full to overflowing. He's inviting us to be able to see those things like he sees them day by day. With our burdens brought to Jesus, he invites us to take on his yoke. His way of being with the Father becomes our way of being with him. Come, learn from me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. It's so good. Deep soul rest in the middle of the traffic of life. Lastly, lastly, Jesus invites us to learn his gentleness. He invites us to learn his gentleness. There's an entire book, some of y'all have probably read it, written a couple of years ago that was basically written about one phrase in verse 29. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And the big insight of the book is that there's only one place in all of the Gospels where Jesus self-describes, and it's this one. When he chooses to describe what he's like, what his character, what his heart's like, he chooses the words gentle and lowly. Not austere and demanding. Not exalted and dignified. Not even joyful and generous. But gentle and lowly. Okay, the, word, the Greek word translated gentle is, is translated elsewhere, meek. Blessed are the meek. Or humble, right? When Jesus is uh, coming in on Palm Sunday. Behold, your king is coming to you humble. That's our word. Humble, gentle, mounted on a donkey. The word lowly is similar to that. It's, it's humble, but not as a virtue. More in the sense of being down and out. It's the word that's found here in Romans 12, 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Someone who's not the life of the party, but somebody that the host cringes when they, sh- when they see them show up. Jesus is saying he's like that. That's my heart. Humble, meek, gentle, lowly. Not someone that's difficult to get a conversation with. Not someone who ever gives you a look of why are you here. It's astounding that Jesus is like this. Because Jesus is also like this. Listen to Revelation 1, where John sees the risen Jesus as he really is. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But then listen to this. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. That Jesus is gentle and lowly. It's amazing. His gentleness is what makes life with him easy and a light burden. He's not going to drag us violently all over the field. He understands our burdens and our sorrows as, as we're trying. He understands our shortcomings 
He understands your weaknesses, your specific things. And he stops to rest when we need a respite. Right? He's in the yoke with us. He compensates for your inabilities. And he, he encourages you when you want to go no further. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself is not doing or that he himself hasn't suffered or that he isn't willing to empower us to do. Really, the whole invitation this morning boils down to this, an invitation to his intimacy, to learn the heart of God. See, the gift that God gives us is the gift of opening himself up like a friend opens himself up to a friend to enter the experience of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is God. And those things become ours. And when they do, our souls find rest. Let's pray together.